Hello and welcome to The Conversation with me, Amanda Decadene. This series of The Conversation is brought to you by VS Voices, another fantastic podcast I host, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the multifaceted nature of the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. On this week's episode, I'm speaking to filmmaker Lucy Walker about psychedelics and the incredible work that's being done to heal trauma, as well as her Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind. Hello, Lucy. Hi, I am so sorry. I'm having a bit of a day. Oh, God. <laughs> you, to meet you. Lucy, I am too. I am too. <laughs> I'm also having a day. So we're both having a day. Yes, but I'm so happy to meet you. I have to confess to being a total fan. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I love what you do. It's time for amazing people like you to lead the way, talking about what's really going on in the world and what we're really I'm doing. I'm trying. I'm trying. I really am trying. I'm very dedicated to it. My goal is to tell the stories and to highlight the subject matters that we really need to be paying attention to. And you do the same thing. You do it through filmmaking. I do it through my own version of storytelling. So I think we've got that in common. Yeah, we totally do. I love it. I really resonate with what you're doing and it's just a different craft to get at it, isn't it? But we're doing the same thing about trying to have these conversations about what really helps to understand and support. And it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, why do we do the things we do? What's the intention, right? I think intention's everything. You know, I first became aware of you a couple of years ago with mm. another project that you had done. And it's like, you've got a very clear point of view with every project that you take. And I'm assuming there's like personal reasons why you're interested in certain subject matters. And you have a very extensive career as a female documentary filmmaker. I want to talk about how to change your mind because that is your latest project. It is based on a book written by Michael Pollan, which so many of us read when it came out. It was such a game changer. It brought psychedelics back into the kind of, you know, zeitgeist in a way that hadn't happened since they had been taken out many years ago and reintroduced them into the conversation in a really significant and much needed way. So when I saw that you had actively gone after the rights to the book and had been turned down, which I want you to talk about. I was so excited to see what you did with these stories. So can you tell me a little bit about why this book in particular spoke to you and why you knew that you were the person to tell these stories? Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So I've always been passionate about psychedelics. In the last few years, the scientists, thank goodness, have been able to get access finally to restarting scientific experiments that were pretty much put on hold in about 1970 by Nixon for reasons of racism and quelling the Vietnam protests. They were actually showing great promise in science, but that's not what we heard about. We heard that they were terrifying and scary and bad for you. And all that promising science got buried and it was a career ruiner to go near them. And only in just the last few years have these certain really brave, really brilliant scientists been able to do this. And suddenly we're seeing in the zeitgeist and the culture, just enormous upswelling of interest in psychedelics and people thinking and noticing, oh, wait, they're helping me, not hurting me. But even before that, I was back in high school in England and I tried LSD and psilocybin and MDMA 
And I observed in my little experimental sample of one person that they were really interesting and left me in a better place than before. I had a very sweet experience with MDMA with my high school girlfriends. We were thanking each other for getting ourselves through those difficult years. And I was so startled that a chemical could kind of put his finger on a this feeling of empathy that I didn't think could be located chemically because it was such a vague emotion, but it was so interesting to me. And I was fascinated. And of course, in England growing up, there was this all this like rave culture and dance culture. But I really noticed that what that replaced was really heavy drinking, being beaten up by really unhappy dudes at the pub or at the football games. And that this was actually a much nicer bunch of people taking the MDMA, even though it was illegal, et cetera. And then with LSD and psilocybin, I just found them fascinating. And I actually personally called psilocybin nature's antidepressant. Wow. Right? Since high school, I just said, wow, I feel lifted. I feel brighter. I feel like I'm out of those ruts. I'm laughing. I hadn't even noticed that I was kind of a bit in a rut. And suddenly I'm brightened up. And I didn't use them too much. Actually, in retrospect, I wish I'd used them a lot more and uh, think I could have had a much happier time in my 20s, et cetera. But I was getting along with my life and I wasn't aware of things. I was just kind of tuned in and listening out. And then in about 2009, there was an article in The Economist, a very little thing saying there was a study showing promise for MDMA, for PTSD, for trauma, for sexual assault. And I thought that makes so much sense. And I shared it with my friends who were struggling with fallout from sexual assault, as frankly, I was doing as well in my life. I just took a real mental note. And meantime, I was also reading about ayahuasca and all these things, which at that time were quite exotic. I happened to have a friend from Ecuador and go to the jungle and stay for a month making a student film with a ayahuasquero where now there's tons of tourism. And back then there just wasn't. I was just always curious because I had had that interest and I just kind of knew there was something there. And so when this research started really popping and Michael Pollan, this wonderful author, had written a piece in The New Yorker that came out in February 2015. That's right about how they were using psilocybin, which is the kind of active ingredient, if you will, in magic mushrooms, for cancer patients who were struggling with anxiety and depression at the end of their life. And I had taken care of my mom when she was dying of cancer, and I actually myself had cancer and survived. Really? Yes. And so I'd been through it, and I thought, you know, when you have cancer, there's drugs for almost everything, but there is nothing that can do that can help with the anxiety and depression. Unfortunately, that's not what Western medicine is very good at. And it is what these psychedelics are good at. So I called up Michael Pollan's agent and I said, I want to adapt this for the screen. And he kind of played with me a little bit and then said no. And I was very upset, but he said, he's actually writing a whole book. So I said, can I adapt the whole book? And he said, no. And my representative said, actually, you're kind of up against kind of a sexist situation with that one. And I don't think you're going to win that battle, Lucy. I don't think you should hold out hope on that project coming around when he's written. Why was it a sexist situation? My reps said that his reps or his agent in particular was not known Woman friendly. And it would seem like an uphill battle that I would be the person to direct it. As fate would have it, I met Michael in a very strange context in a small arm medicine circle, ayahuasca circle in Marin County, California. Wow. And I said, hey, Michael Pollan, that's a coincidence. And I'm a big fan. And we got chatting. And by that stage, I was already developing my own series because I'd kind of given up on 
working with him, and I was going to have eight episodes, one for each of eight different molecules. In talking to him, we really hit it off. And then a month later, we kind of came conference buddies and had lunch a couple of times. And he had was still writing his book. I kept thinking, wow, his book's going to be huge. His book's going to be the book because he's got such a lovely, trusted voice. He's nervous Nelly, as he calls himself. And yet he can really take us with him into these explorations for an audience that's really not sure what to make of them. He actually went and experienced all these different psychedelics and documented his own journey, which is fascinating because you know it's firsthand experience. Exactly. So he's very relatable for a lot of people who are really curious about what that experience might bring them, but have been very hesitant to try. So he wrote this fantastic book, but I knew it was going to be really popular before he did. And I said, Michael, this book's going to be huge. He's like, no, no, no. It's kind of obscure. I'm like, yeah, but look, the surf is, you know, we're just, the wave is going to break. And I, and I feel like that sometimes with my project, I feel like you can, you have to kind of paddle like a surfer for the wave long before it breaks. Cause it takes you a while to get into position and you better be paddling for a while before the wave breaks. And I think the cultural wave is breaking now, but I was paddling for this wave since 2015, if not my whole life. I love when I read that you got turned down. And I love that, as you said, as fate would have it, it's like when things align and you were in the same place as him in a small, intimate environment, you were able to connect. It was like, that was your film to make. I did say to him, look, if you don't want me to direct it, I don't want to compete with you. I'll just help. Thank you for noticing the persistence because a lot of things are persistence, not being afraid when the door says no, but just doing what feels right anyway, even if the first door isn't open. And that's how the, the big things work out, I think, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So I want to ask you about your sister, Beth. Mm, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Yeah. To hear about her passing. Yeah, she was an amazing girl. She was the loveliest girl. I'm very lucky I had her in my life. She passed away at the age of 37 with a five-year-old and a six-year-old and, and a husband. She was wonderful and we all loved her very much, but she was diagnosed very tragically when she was pregnant with her youngest. And it was always a really, really dire prognosis. It was never one of these like we call it early situations. It was always very serious. And she was incredible about living her life and spending her time with her family and being an amazing mom till the end. I was so acutely aware of the fact that she was struggling. It was so hard for her and her husband naturally. And she did have a lot of medical support. But of course, it's so hard to face the end of your life, especially as a young mom, as she was in a really devoted one. And there's nothing for that agony in Western medicine. There's some anti-anxieties and some sleep meds, but the real anguish and the real way of reconciling yourself with the larger experience of being alive in a way that can actually really address the larger, what they call existential anxiety, and also get a handle on the depression. Yes, there's drugs you can take, but we all know that the standard antidepressants are not what we wish and often come with side effects. So I was reading all this data and interviews when I was working on the film. And nothing I could say to her would 
reassure her that it wasn't a scary experience, that it could be done safely, that it could be of benefit to someone just like her, who is, she's naturally a little bit conservative. She was not the experimenter in the family. That would definitely be me. Um, she was not doing any drugs in high school. She, uh, in fact, was a lawyer and very law abiding and very concerned as everyone should be about the safety of these substances. And so I would never try to persuade her, but I did know that she might benefit and that nothing I could say, even though we had this wonderful relationship and listened to each other would be as powerful as her watching the show that I could make using my skills. Mm, Absolutely. Did she ever get to see it? She did not, but it was in my heart that this is something that we're all looking at going through either ourselves or with close family and friend around us. Cancer is here for us all, or, you know, terminal disease situations, unfortunately, are such a huge part of life. And that is a subject matter that people don't want to talk about. I mean, I, I don't want to get into it too much because I will, I'm on like the verge of tears all the time Mm. because my dad just died. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. It's the hardest thing. And there isn't nearly enough support, help and understanding. Dying and grieving is not something that we're good as, as a culture, is it? Well, Here's what I'm going to say. I'm not quite sure where this is going to take me because I've spent the last 18 months with a man who's in the process of dying. And all I'm interested in doing now is making a series about the intimacy of death. And I don't know what that's going to do for my career. I don't know who will make this thing. But I have to say that having had the experience of meeting people on this journey, death doulas, end-of-life care workers, undertakers, hospice workers. These people have renewed my faith in humanity on a level that I desperately needed. And I feel like death is one of the things that people don't want to talk about, as you said. And yet it's the only inevitability. The only inevitability is if you're lucky enough to be born, (laughs) you have parents and they will die and you will die. The rest is up for grabs. Right. What happens in between that is up for grabs. But the fact that we don't have any cultural conversation in the West about death and grieving is shocking, but not. And so when my dad was dying, I spoke to him about the studies that were happening at John Hopkins for cancer patients, and he was open to it. We didn't actually get to the point where he was, you know, able to do it because he he died before he was we were at that point, but I certainly did so much research into the incredible case studies that MDMA and psilocybin provided people with end-of-life existential crisis. And it was so reassuring. In fact, I'm less afraid about dying now, having been up close with it. Wow, so beautifully said. I think you're exactly right. And I feel exactly the same way. The carers in this world that are dealing with that, you know, are such angels and make such a difference in times of such, you know, need. And it's so sweet. And I'm so grateful to people that have helped me in my family in those situations. My mom had terminal cancer in 2003 and I moved back to London. I'd been living in New York at film school and I moved back to London to take care of her in her last months. And I was so starved of cultural conversation. The only thing I could find was this TV show, Six Feet Under, which is a fantastic show. Brilliant. It's fictional though. 
fictional. It's like a dark comedy set in a funeral home in America. Like, why was I in London finding this resonant of my sort of care of my mom? Because there was nothing else that was talking about death. Lucy, there still isn't. There is one series on Netflix called Surviving Death, and it's about after death experiences. It's more to do with mediums and reincarnation and that kind of thing. There is nothing that walks you through the experience of death. And if you think about the last two years with how many people have died from COVID, death and dying is now in everybody's, everybody thought about this, right? So many people lost someone who knew someone or it's death that is omnipresent more than it's ever been. And yet that story doesn't exist. That documentary doesn't exist, which is why I want to make it because I think there's a very human, relatable way of doing this because there's humorous aspects to death, isn't there? Where you're, you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is happening. You know what I mean? Like you just, even the people there, you just laugh because you're like anxious and you're scared, but you, you laugh sometimes you have a laugh because you're like, I don't, this is just too much. It's so nuanced. And I want to make something that isn't clinical. I want to make something that's personal and relatable. And, Mm. and this is a subject matter that is not talked about. Definitely. Oh, for sure. I think it will really help a lot of people. You know, I can share an experience where a dear friend of mine had cancer. And actually one of the perks, if you could say, of having cancer and surviving, which I did, is that you can really connect with people who are going with situations. And What I, kind of cancer did you have? I had two kinds of cancer, ovarian and uterine. Wow. Yeah. And fortunately, both were caught early and I survived both. And I felt really grateful. Is that what your mom had? No, it's not. It's kind of freaky that I had them young. There's kind of a syndrome where you get them both. I'm not the only person that's had that situation where you actually have both in quick succession, but it was devastating and I'd wanted to have kids. See, I maybe I'm the perfect person to make this with you. I had 12 days when I was told I only had a few months to live. Amazing story. And wow. um, they had the pathology wrong from the surgery. You're kidding. No, 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 no. Oh my God. What did those 12 days teach you? It was a lot, right? You spend 12 days sitting with, what do you do with a few months? What is happening? (laughs) What do I do with the time I have left with this clock ticking in your ear and thinking like, how do I care for the people I'm leaving behind? That experience helped me so much when my sister got diagnosed, even though of course I had survivor guilt because it was very strange, you know, to watch someone you love who does not get the good news. I had this miraculous reprieve. It was sort of out of a fiction. You know, I went to my doctor for the follow-up. I'd had a big surgery and the initial pathology was wrong. And so when I went back 12 days later for the final pathology, she said, wow, I never get to live for good news. And I have really good news for you. You have a second kind of cancer. You're going to do chemotherapy but you're going to live. Wow, Lucy. And I never get to deliver juice like this. This is a one in a million day. How did you feel hearing that? I mean, it's surreal because being told that you only have a few months to live, especially when you're in the recovery room, I was coming out of an eight and a half hour surgery when I was told I only had a few months to live. So that was a surprise. And then 12 days later to be told you actually are going to live. In fact, you're going to be fine. I mean, at this point, you're spinning so wildly. But life is like that. And as you know, when you suddenly have 
medical problems in your life, life gets spun around so fast. And you look at the rest of life when you don't face these kinds of things. It's this kind of extraordinary calm. And why didn't you appreciate it while you had it? So I just want to hold on to that feeling I had with the 12 days when you think, my God, this time I have is a gift. And it's so hard sometimes when life is tough and you're having a tough day. And my God, life is so tough, I think, for me, certainly. I think, oh, same. Right. And and we're the you have so many resources and privileges. Of course. Nonetheless, it's so difficult. And yet what a gift it is to have this time and we can use it for benefit. Do you think you've hold, you've held on to that feeling? It's so hard. I really try. I really try because I mean you can't every day. It would be impossible. You can't every day. That's the human condition though. I would say life is a sexually transmitted terminal disease. But normally we don't think of it that way because death is over the horizon. We've got all these fun things to do before we have to get over that hill. And so it's sort of hidden from view and we live in this wonderful state of denial. And then suddenly, if you are confronted with it imminently, it's so hard to navigate, but there is an opportunity for incredible meaning and closeness with the people around you. And these tremendous intimacies and closenesses and the best of life actually can really be squeezed out of this worst of moments, can't it? And it's fascinating. Was that a catalyst for you in any capacity? I do look on it as this turning point in my life. And I was so upset about not having kids and my relationship had fallen apart and my career was so difficult. And yet I suddenly felt like I was given a second life. It was suddenly like a a magic trick. I had 12 days of suffering through of thinking that was the end of my life. And I suddenly kind of, somebody gave me a whole new life. I got like a video game. You're like, okay, now that wasn't the end of the game. You get a second life. Partly, I think after you go through something like that, it gives you more courage to deal with difficult things. Because you faced your own death. Yeah, a little bit. And also a really renewed determination to use the time I have to be of benefit. And something that's really helped me in my life is Buddhism, actually. Mm. And I don't often talk about this, but I do think of it as a very kind of active kind of compassion. And that again, with the storytelling, what we're doing is expanding our circle of empathy. And compassion. And compassion to people that aren't like ourselves. Through this storytelling, you can imaginatively identify with someone who doesn't have the same life. And it's really great source of force for the good. And back to the original, you know, start the conversation when we were talking about how sometimes people just don't know that what they're saying is oppressing other people or violent or making other people hurt or sad or misunderstood or holding down women or people of color, all these things. I mean, there's so much ignorance out there and actually expanding that circle of awareness is a real force for good in the world. And so I think it really made me feel good about what I do and double down on that, really trying to be of benefit, I think. Yeah, that's what I also do. I look at all the different experiences I've had that were things that, you know, almost killed me. And I put them to good use because you can relate and you can connect with so many more people through shared life experience. And I'm constantly looking at how can I best be of service? And you have this amazing gift of communication and presentation of material, right? That's your talent. And who better that people want to get that, those conversations from than you. So you're using- Yeah, I, that's why I feel like this death conversation is really important. And I'll tell you, since I started sharing 
my thoughts on death and really sharing it publicly, the response from people has been overwhelmingly positive because I think people really do want to hear about it and they want a place to talk about it. And that to me is a really strong indication that there's more work to be done here. As I'm in process with my own grieving, it's like that's informing everything. It's like happening in real time for me. If you love the conversation, then I wanted to tell you about another podcast I host called VS Voices. The VS Voices podcast provides a platform for women to speak their diverse truths, share personal stories, and advance discussions of issues that are important to them. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You said you've been working on how to change your mind since 2019. How do you pick the things that you make films about? Yeah, good question. So some of it's sort of practical. Will someone give me money to make this? Because this it's what Orson Welles called an expensive paint box. You know, yes. someone's got to pay. And unfortunately, I can't. So, so it has to be financeable somehow. And somebody else hasn't made it already. I kind of feel like, well, if somebody else has got that, then, you know, I'm better used elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. So I need to find my own turf. And I feel really like I just tune into a combination of what is the most important story that I can tell that has to be so interesting to me that I will be motivated to put all the work in because making films is a pain. Oh my God. I mean, I don't know to the degree that you do, but I have a lot of friends who are filmmakers and it's like, it's endless. It's endless and exhausting and, and you know, problem solving and oh my yeah. God, immense respect. Exactly. So I've got to be really interested, genuinely like want to drop everything else in my life because I'm obsessed and want to find out the answer for myself. That's what it takes to make a really good film. It's that degree of just real passionate obsession, devotion. I want to be pushing the craft and it has to be good on the screen. Some things are amazingly important and fascinating, but they might be better off as magazine pieces or clips that somebody else might do or or podcasts or whatnot. So it has to be sort of what's on the screen. It's going to work in the media. Visually inspiring. Yeah. And also like, actually you can get access to it because some stories are amazing, but nobody's going to talk to you or you can't tell it in a way that's going to make it really work because I really like you know, using the craft and connecting with an audience and giving the audience a really good experience. So it's got to be something that's actually going to be a good film if I do pour everything into it. You know, I love your story about how you shot in a lot of glass houses. Yeah, that's right. Um, greenhouses. I still call them glass houses, but greenhouses during this series because it was, you know, right on the end of COVID and people were afraid and you had to sort of be outdoors, but still have containment for your sound and your shot. And it was just, it was so great to read. Yeah, that's right. So you're always making these creative decisions. And some of the decisions making that show were definitely about the pandemic. But the psychedelics are fascinating. And I think there's even more in that culture. So actually, I have another project that's about another interesting psychedelic called Ibogaine. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. Um, it has the unique property of removing opiate addiction from the body. So actually, a lot of people have been using it and with amazing success rates. I know someone who treats people with it in Mexico because it's illegal here, right? Exactly. Yes. A friend of mine does it. I'm in recovery since I'm 21. Yeah. I know all about this and it is fascinating. It's fascinating. Now with the psychological renaissance, we can look at that. Now that one has a little bit more of a risk profile. So you 
do want to have medical support around it, as opposed to something like psilocybin, where it's really hard to get into trouble with. Why is it still, it's still illegal though? But why is it still illegal when we have this terrible opiate crisis? So I think the tide may change on that. And the story is really cool because actually how it was discovered that it had that unique property, which nothing else, there's no other molecule on earth that can do this. It's like a magic trick and nobody knows how it's done. But if you take this drug, you will not have cravings. And in fact, you'll have a really sort of interesting psychological boost towards your recovery, which is an incredibly hard road. And so few people managed to successfully quit. Get clean and stay clean. Well, what I found really interesting was as a person who's been sober for a long time, obviously I don't do any drugs or drink any alcohol. And as I started researching psilocybin and MDMA, I was like, this is fascinating for trauma, obviously. So when I started looking into psilocybin and MDMA, I was like, how's this going to work for someone that doesn't ingest any mind altering substances? And what I discovered through my research was that actually Bill Wilson, who's one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, actually devised of the 12 steps through his conversations with not only Carl Jung, but also through his conversations with Aldous Huxley and his own experimentation with psychedelics enabled him to come up with the concept of a higher power and a spiritual awakening, which is exactly. a big part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was blown away to discover that. I was like, wow, they kept that quiet. <laughs> they did, didn't they? Yeah. I know, and the fact that psychedelics now are showing incredible promise for alcohol use disorder, all kinds of addictions, including smoking. The Ibogaine has this specific property for opiate withdrawal, but lots of these other compounds, as you say, including psilocybin, are incredible tools showing incredible promise. Wow, couldn't we just use them in our world? I think that we're going to be learning more and more about this. It's so counterintuitive that something that's got the scary reputation like psychedelics could actually be helpful for anxiety and that a drug that we think of as an illegal bad drug could actually be really helpful to combat, for example, drug addictions and drug use disorders. It's also marketing though. This is just a bad marketing job that's fed by the government. I need to look at what the reality is and the facts are and listen to people who I respect and hear what the truths are. But I think your film has certainly helped remarket the benefits of psychedelic treatments in a really incredible way. I mean, I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. I'll tell you another story that's interesting. I grew up in the UK and as a girl, I don't think many English girls of my generation were trying, I mean, not many people of any gender were trying psychedelics, I think, but I had a particularly exploratory boyfriend and it was him that gave me these drugs. I'm really grateful to him. He was brilliant and fascinating. And I had been reading Aldous Huxley and reading The Doors of Perception and reading about it as a kind of bookish teen and wanted to try drugs from a place of being influenced, you know, the tail end of the 60s and liking the 60s bands and, and all that. But it was rare. So few of my girlfriends have ever tried drugs, some later MDMA. But I felt so lucky. Very sadly, that boyfriend who had a very traumatic childhood and family background and was undoubtedly medicating for his trauma in the way that now we can recognize, but at the time we didn't know. He sadly went on to use heroin and cocaine and unfortunately never ever could get free of opiates. And years later, 
overdosed at 39 mm, and he was sorry. really candid yeah he was thank you yeah he was a really special guy and he was always so open about his struggles and it was so charming that he just could talk about how difficult life was and how difficult quitting was well you think about how something like ibogaine could have helped him exactly and when i heard about ibogaine i thought is that true and the, actually the minute that i heard about it i got on a train and went to a clinic in mexico and i was like i need to know is this bullshit because if what they're saying is true, that opiate use disorder patients can go there and experience drug-free withdrawal, that is wild. And that would have saved him. And, you know, I think he had the keys in his hand all along because he was really interested in psychedelics and said they helped him. But when he joined 12-step programs, he quit psychedelics because he thought he had to just stay clean. Then he could never stay clean. Then he was back on the heroin and it killed him. And I felt like he was onto something. So I'm really sort of making that film in dedication to him because if you That's beautiful. know somebody who struggles and can't get kind of out of that cage of addiction, you would do anything. And I just want to say that the people I know in recovery who have successfully worked with psychedelics have had long-term sobriety, who have worked with their sponsors, who have worked the 12 steps multiple times, who have really solid recovery. I think that as people who are new to recovery, it would not be something that I would recommend out the gate as psilocybin and MDMA without having done big doses myself. But as someone who's involved in the recovery community, there are some people who it could be very triggering for. You know, I couldn't even swallow vitamins when I first got sober because it was reminded me of taking pills and it was triggering for me. Like I was that sensitive. You know, I had to really get secure in my recovery before I could even contemplate doing something that isn't in the literature. I think that what you experience, I'm so happy to see you looking so well and doing what you're doing. Thank you. It's like the ideal outcome, right? I'm so happy to be seeing you here now in the position you're in because what playbook did you have? And then you were so young and there was so much going on. And the forces you know, at work in your life were so completely overwhelming. And how are you expected to cope apart from falling apart under those pressures? That's exactly right. There's no way most people in life are not given the skills to create an internal infrastructure that allows them to deal with, I always say with trauma, there's like big T and little T traumas, you know, every day, everybody's dealing with little traumas. And then there's the massive ones that most people, I have yet to meet a person that if I spend enough time with them, I don't discover, oh my God, this person has had catastrophic experiences or massive losses, or, you know, people overcome so much. We're so resilient. And yet over the years, it becomes harder and harder to be able to be resilient. I'm of the mindset that if something really helps people and it is not damaging to them or someone else, let's bring it forward because God knows people need support. They need help, you know, and, and that's why it's a subject matter, you know, that I'm really, really interested in. No, I'm obsessed. I mean, it's so interesting for all the reasons you're talking about. And I'm so excited about what it's going to look like when we can access these medicines in a safe way. Well, where are we at now with FDA approval? Because I heard that something got approved the other day on another level that hadn't happened before that was real progress. And I don't know the details, maybe I'm sure you do. Yeah, there's actually lots of fronts that are really exciting. And there's also some little losses. We were actually looking at the whole of California having a decrim bill. 
And decriminalization is not quite the same as legalization, but it would have meant that it would be the lowest police priority. Unfortunately, that just got squashed. But in many places, that's one mechanism. It's called decrim nature or decriminalization movement. There's been local areas, it started in Oakland, and but it's been in states and lots of cities where it's been passed and it's now the lowest police priority. But meantime, you've got fantastic results, the MDMA. They're really expecting that to be legally available in the U.S. as soon as the end of next year, because the, wow. the results are so promising and it has breakthrough status. And if you look at something so damaging as PTSD, there's so many veterans who are killing themselves, much more dying than they ever did in war. And having filmed with a bunch of amazing veterans, also for my Abigail project, because it's amazing work that's being done with veterans. It's life-changing. If you think about if we had suddenly a new cancer drug that was saving lives, there wouldn't be a question about it. But for mental health, I think people don't quite make the connection between mental health ends and destroys lives. Absolutely. Uh, health problems do. And if we had something that would show that much promise for cancer, we wouldn't be questioning it. But the psychedelics, their reputation has been so difficult. But so MDMA is on its way for PTSD. I also think that there's going to be off-label use for relationship counseling and all kinds of other stuff apart from PTSD, but particularly for sexual trauma and combat trauma is research started. Traditionally, the military would have been the like enemy in the war on drugs. You know, they're very establishment, very conservative. It was almost to make sure that Americans would sign up for the military, that these molecules all got outlawed in the US. And actually, it was the US who put pressure on the whole rest of the world to also make them illegal. It's actually the pressure of the US on all the other countries. But now the VA is studying it because they've got nothing else that helps their soldiers in the same way. Mm. God, they're realizing that. So that's happening. Meantime, psilocybin in trials, both in the US and the UK, has been shown to be you know, better than the leading standard of care for depression. Yes. One dose of psilocybin, not like a pill that you take every day that has lots of side effects, a four to six hour experience with a couple of preparation and integration kind of therapy sessions can really turn around in a permanent way. OCD, we see in How to Change Your Mind, a guy with crippling OCD. Oh, that was so powerful, that episode. And that research, we've really broken the story because that research hasn't been published yet, but I think the OCD that community- That was major. And something else you'll resonate with, because I think this is a huge thing that so many of our friends and family struggle with, is eating disorders. Yes. So research being done, I think that's going to be a game changer because we have nothing- that's huge. Disorders. Yeah, nothing. It's such a difficult thing when people get into that. I did not know about studies with eating disorders. That is real news. Fascinating. So both in the US and the UK, studies opening up. With psilocybin? Yes. And psilocybin is often the one that's being picked because it's quite short, short acting and relative to LSD. So LSD is more of an eight to 12 hour experience. If you are a doctor having to sit through that session, it's very difficult to manage such a long experience when you're trying to support it in a really safe. Yes. It's difficult to scale. Difficult to scale. Exactly. The LSD trip It's not that it, it might not be the most promising of all. It's just, it's more difficult to work with. Plus it has the worst reputation of all because it was really sullied by those uh, 60 sort of scare ads. And so psilocybin is a shorter four to six hours, very, very safe, absolutely no risk profile. It's kind of amazing. You can have all these extraordinary visions and be really transported in your mind, but your body is like, 
there's just nothing happening. Everything else is just like business as usual, nothing to worry about. So that's what's extraordinary and why that's often being used. But I think that there's going to also be more studies in future. And they have started studies for Ibogaine now in the UK and in Spain and in Brazil. So I think that's going to be really interesting. That way is just kind of breaking. But I think the laws are going to start to crumble. It, it seems to me that there's no enemy in the war on drugs anymore. You know, we've just... Wow, that is quite a statement given where it was. Yeah. That is so exciting. I know. And that gives me real hope because I think you can look around the world and start to understand so much of what's happening in the world is coming out of unhealed places. And we might have solutions that we've never had access to before. And what's also to note is, of course, there are indigenous people that have had these wisdom traditions all along, and we have to be really grateful and aware of that. But in the West, we've done our total best to either destroy those medicine traditions or, you know, not recognize them as value at all, and often really persecute people that might have been using them. Well, it's the other, right? It's why it's so important to have conversations with people, to bring forward concepts and beliefs that are different to ours, to keep talking to people outside of the echo chamber. Otherwise, exactly. there's always an other that someone needs to destroy, you know, which is unfortunate because there's so many incredible practitioners who have to make sure they're covert and undercover so that they can continue to do their work. I'm very aware of like the legal loopholes and the legal places because there's nothing in the series that's illegal. Everything was a legal trial or in a place where it was legal at the time. But you're right. And I think it's really important to remember that the people that are providing medicines are still taking enormous risks. And we have to protect them. And there's a lot of traditionally trained psychotherapists who saw from their own work and had their own experiences that I've interviewed that have said they could not continue doing traditional psychotherapy once they became aware of how effective working with hallucinogenics was. So, I mean, I found that fascinating with the interviews that I've done with people. Exactly. And actually another legal avenue to things really changing is this incredible new law in initiative in Oregon, which got passed. So it's totally happening where psilocybin is going to be available from your psychotherapist in the office. Wow. In Oregon? In Oregon. I know. So there was this wonderful initiative led by a couple called Tom and Sheree Eckert. And Sheree actually sadly passed away when we were making Had a Change of Yes, I saw that. I saw that. They had this visionary idea that like this needs to be available to people during their psychotherapy appointments with their psychotherapist, helping them in this experience because it can be so therapeutic and it got passed. And so they're on a kind of runway now figuring out training and, and safety and protocols and safety is very important. Always, you know, we need to be very mindful of as things expand that we're very aware that there are always going to be risks and risks with who you take it with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's so exciting. Such a treat to talk to you, Lucy. Thank you so very much. I know that the listeners of the conversation are going to find this really interesting. And if people have not seen your series on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind, please go and watch it because in my opinion, it is one of the best documentaries that really covers not only the history, but also the facts and reality and really incredible broad experiences that people are having with psychedelic treatment. Mm, thank you so much. What a treat. So happy to see you. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening. 
please subscribe. And don't forget that if you love the conversation, then check out VS Voices, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter and follow me on social media at Amanda Decadene. 